we're going to begin uh, looking at Jonah this evening, having a break from Matthew for uh, a few weeks as we look at this prophet. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Jonah this year in our holiday club in the summer. Uh, so for those of you that are, are helping with that, uh, this will be a great opportunity to get into this book uh, so that we can uh, share it with the children. Uh, but actually, it's a great opportunity for all of us to come uh, and understand what this book of Jonah uh, is all about. But before we look at Jonah uh, in detail, uh, the words of the, the book, I'm going to show you some pictures to get us thinking to start with. And when you see these images on the screen, I want you to think to yourself, uh, what, is the, what word or couple of words might come to mind when you see uh, these people on the screen? What kind of people do you think that these uh, men and women are? Now, words that come to your mind, uh, I've heard a few uh, just say, uh, words like evil or words like wicked. Okay, so these uh, people are uh, dictators that have killed millions, or they are uh, murderers. And the words that come to our minds are wicked and evil. And I think you would be right to think in those lines. What these people did uh, was indeed evil uh, and very wicked. But how would you feel if God saved them from judgment by forgiving all of their sins. How would you feel if you met any of these in heaven? Now, it's an extreme example, isn't it? You think that's, a, that's quite extreme, and maybe that is true, except when we look at Jonah, the people that he's asked to go to are not much different from the ones that we see on the screen. But even if we don't think of these extreme examples that we see up there, we can all think in our own minds of people that we might think of being well, unworthy of being a Christian. People we look at and we think, well, I don't really think they should be in God's kingdom. I don't really want them in God's kingdom. I certainly don't want them to come into our church. I mean, what would we do if, if a murderer comes into church? What would we think? How would we act? You see, our mercy often extends to people that we think deserve it. And when our attitude is that mercy is to those that we think deserve it, usually the people we think deserve it are people who are just like us. And Jonah, this prophet that we are going to read about, is a lot like us in that respect. He is a man who wanted to limit God's mercy to people who were just like him and God wants to send him to people who were just like them. And this prophecy therefore challenges us to think about who God loves. What kind of God are we worshipping? What kind of justice is our God distributing when he even can save and forgive even our worst enemies. And as we read Jonah, we must be under no illusions that we're reading of a prophet who has to come to terms that God is a God who can forgive even those 
that are our worst enemies, that we think would never, never be part of God's kingdom. Well, Jonah is a prophecy that was written about 800 years before Jesus was born. It's an unusual book of the Bible because usually a prophecy in the Bible is a word given to a prophet that a prophet speaks. But here, rather, we see a word about a prophet. So rather than Jonah being given a word from the Lord that he speaks out, although he does prophesy in the book, the, the book really is a, a narrative about a prophet. It's the story of Jonah. And he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel and is most famous in this story for being swallowed by a great fish. Now the fish actually is what he's most famous for, but it's actually a small part of a much bigger story with a much greater lesson than anything that the fish really uh, has to teach us. Uh, an old preacher of the early 20th century, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, said that people have focused so much on the great fish that they miss out on the great God. And that's very true words. Jonah is a book not about a great fish. It is a book about a great God who has a great mercy. And the theme of Jonah is that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. And as we think about the fact that salvation from the Lord, we see in Jonah that that salvation surprises us. The whole of this story is uh, literature known as satire. What me that means is that what happens is always really what we don't expect to happen. What we expect to happen doesn't. What we don't expect does. Everything is just turned upside down. Who God gives mercy to, who responds to God's mercy in the way that they do, and who doesn't respond to God's mercy is a massive shock to those that were reading the story when it was written. And it will be a shock to us too. And this salvation from God is great mercy. And right at the start, we see the surprising mercy of God. But to understand the book of Jonah, we need to take a step backwards and take a step back literally in our Bibles uh, to 2 Kings chapter 14. So keep a finger in Jonah and turn back to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 23. Now that's page 384 in the church Bibles, 384. But if you have a large print Bible, that's page 591. <clears throat> All of the, the prophets of uh, the Bible uh, are set in history. Uh, Jonah is not uh, a made-up story. Uh, it is a, a, a real account of, of what happened. And it's, uh, it's set in the context of 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29. And in order to understand the prophet Jonah, uh, we need really, first of all, to understand what was happening in Israel and to Jonah before the book takes place. And we meet Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 23 to 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, 
Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hepher. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did and all his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son succeeded him as king. It's here in this passage in two kings that we meet Jonah, son of Amittai. And Jonah was a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II of Israel. Now, after uh, Solomon was the king of Israel, uh, you may remember from when we looked at the kings not that long ago, that Israel split into two nations. There was a, a fallout between uh, the sons of, uh, uh, son of Solomon and the rest of the nation of Israel. And so there was two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the first king of Israel in the north was Jeroboam the first. And we read about Jeroboam the first in this passage here, because Jeroboam the second, in verse 24, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. This Jeroboam son of Nebat was the first Jeroboam. He was the first king of Israel, and he had led Israel into idolatry. He had made idols for them to worship so that they wouldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. And he told them to worship these idols and to not go and worship uh, the Lord as he had directed in Jerusalem. They fell into idolatry, and all of the kings that followed Jeroboam I, all of them were evil, and Jeroboam II was no different. He was a wicked king who had followed in the footsteps of the kings before him, tracing all the way back to Jeroboam the first. And in verse 24, he did evil, just like Jeroboam did. He too led Israel into idolatry, he ignored the word of the Lord, and he was a wicked king. During this time, as well as jo Jonah uh, prophesying, uh, the prophets Hosea and Amos also preached, but they preached against Israel. They called Israel back from idolatry to worship the Lord. But Israel did not listen. They did not listen to the prophets Hosea and Amos, and they continued in their wicked ways. And one of the reasons that Jeroboam ignored Hosea and Amos was because although he was a wicked king, he was also a very successful king. Look at his successes in verse 25. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. Before he became king, 
the mighty Assyrian Empire was the dominant force of the day. And this was a problem for Israel. It exacted tribute from them, causing economic problems. It took land away from Israel that they uh, wanted to use for themselves. But by Jeroboam's time, this wicked Assyrian Empire who were causing so many problems was weakening. It was in decline. And Jeroboam was able to claim some of this land back. He extended Israel's territory further than they had ever known before. It was a time of prosperity for God's people. It did not appear to Israel that God was in any way unhappy with them because they were successful. Jeroboam was wicked, but he was successful. And Jonah, the prophet, well, he's involved in this success, isn't he? Look at verse 25. Jeroboam did all this restoring of the boundaries in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Well, Gath-Hefer is uh, a few miles north of Nazareth, and this prophet Jonah was given a word from the Lord about the success of Israel. Hosea and Amos, well, they were told to go away. They'd rebuked Israel. But Jonah, well, he was a popular prophet because he was involved in the big successes of the regime. He was a big name in Israel. Everyone would have wanted to hear what Jonah had to say because he prophesied success and it came true. And in verses 26 and 27, we see there the reason why God had given this success because the Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel whether slave or free was suffering there was no one to help them and since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam son of Jehoash God had mercy on Israel they were miserable under this wicked rule they were suffering, and they deserved to be because they were idolatrous. And yet God did not blot them out like they deserved. He rather bought them success. Well, we know how Israel's story ends. The moral of this is not, well, don't worry about how wicked you are. God will bless you anyway. Israel ended being taken over by the Assyrians, and they were wiped out. Wiped out. They ended in disaster because they didn't repent. But the point here is that at this point in Israel's history, even when they were incredibly wicked, God was incredibly merciful. It's really important to see that the context to Jonah the prophet is the story of a big-name prophet in a wicked nation who has been shown extraordinary mercy from God. And this is a big theme in Jonah. And really in Jonah chapter 1 and the first few verses, we need to understand the extraordinary extent of God's mercy. So if you turn back now uh, to Jonah, with that, that context in our minds, we see the extraordinary extent of God's mercy. And first of all, it's important to see that that extraordinary mercy of God is shown to Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 14, Israel, the, the wicked nation of Israel with a wicked king who ought to know better, 
because he had prophets telling him the word of God was showing extraordinary mercy. But then we come to Jonah chapter 1 and we come to this prophecy of Jonah where the extraordinary extent of God's mercy is also going to be shown to another wicked nation. Just read for the start verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Well, verse 1 begins a lot like 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 does. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And notice it's the same Jonah, the son of Amittai, that was the prophet in Israel. And then in verse 2, just like Jonah was given a word of mercy to wicked Israel, he is given a word of mercy to wicked Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was one of the main cities of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was an enemy of Israel. And although they were in decline, leaving Israel alone a little bit, they were still an enemy that Israel had a long history of trouble with. And they were wicked. In the prophet Nahum, a couple of books after this, which prophesies uh, Nineveh's destruction, it's described as a city of bloodshed and violence. If you go to the British Museum, you can see in that museum uh, pillars and uh, uh, statues of just the kind of people the Assyrians were. They were a horrific people. They were uh, bloodshed and violence is a great description which Nahum gives, and you can see that if you go and look at the exhibits of the Assyrians in the British Museum. It is a huge surprise, the first surprise of many in this book, that God, the God of Israel, would send this successful prophet all the way to wicked Nineveh. I mean, if Jonah brings success to Nineveh, well, and they repent, and God blesses them, and they're as successful as Israel, well, then they might come out of their decline and start causing problems again. It's a, a huge surprise that God would, would send Jonah to this wicked Assyrian city. And the word of God comes to Jonah and it says to preach against it because the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. Now, when it says there, come up before me, it doesn't mean that God uh, wasn't aware of the wickedness of Nineveh until all of a sudden he was looking around the world and he saw it and thought, oh, how wicked are they? Oh, I didn't know that. That's not what it means. Uh, it, it means literally in his sovereignty he takes note of it. He takes note of the wickedness of Nineveh. And he, it, it's come to the point where he wants to do something about this. And so he asked Jonah to preach against the city, to preach against them, to tell them of their wickedness, to tell them of the consequences of, of turning away uh, from following uh, the Lord and where wickedness ends up. And that is a sign, by the way, of extraordinary mercy. It might seem uh, almost unmerciful or unkind to tell somebody that they are a sinner or they are 
uh, performing wicked acts or to tell them things they don't really want to hear, to preach against them. But actually, it's a far worse judgment to let sin continue to their ultimate destruction in judgment, isn't it? It is extraordinary mercy that God will not allow Nineveh to carry on without somebody going to preach against them to tell them of their sin. Now, Jonah had prophesied to Israel about their physical boundaries extending. We saw that in in 2 Kings. But this prophecy extends the boundaries of Israel spiritually to a far greater extent than the borders of Israel. The boundaries of God's mercy extend even to their most bitter of foes, even Nineveh. The extraordinary extent of God's mercy is to wicked Israel and to wicked Nineveh, both of whom deserve to be destroyed, but both of whom God wants to show mercy to. At this time in history, God wants to send Jonah to bring his mercy to the wicked. In these days, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, in in these days he sends his son. He sends Jesus. And doesn't Jesus preach against us? He tells us about the evil that is in our hearts. He tells us of the judgment to come that we deserve. Just like Jonah was told to. He goes to those who will despise him and reject him and scorn him. He goes to those who are his enemies. But God's mercy goes even further in Jesus because he did preach against us, but Jesus also died for us. The extent of God's mercy is extraordinary. It goes so far that he sends his perfect son to die on the cross to pay for the sins of the wicked. And if you haven't got this yet, let's be under no illusions. All of us need God's mercy because all of us are wicked. Yes, maybe to a lesser or greater degree, but all of us need God's mercy. All of us deserve God's judgment. And so we ought to be ever so glad that God is a God who shows extraordinary mercy. If you look at other people and think that they are less deserving of mercy than you are, or you look at others and you think, well, they don't deserve God's mercy, then you have not understood the extraordinary mercy of God and in all likelihood have never received it yourself. And we can praise God for this, can't we? That God's mercy can extend to you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought or said, whatever wickedness is in our hearts, God's mercy is so extraordinary that it extends even to you. Your wickedness has reached up to God in the words of Jonah chapter 1 verse 2. But praise God, his son has come down for you. So you can ask God to forgive your sin and trust that Jesus has paid for it. Extraordinary mercy. Well, the first two verses of Jonah are just like any other Old Testament prophet. 
The word of God comes and, it is, and a message is given for the prophet to declare. Every prophet in the Old Testament begins pretty much with the word of the Lord came and he gives the message and the prophet's expected to go. The first surprise is that the prophecies to Nineveh, but the second surprise is in verse 3. The first surprise is who God's mercy is given to, but the second surprise is what God's prophet does with that message. Instead of obedience to the word of God that is given to him, we see the extraordinary arrogance of God's prophet. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Well, let me show you a map, which I don't think is as clear as I thought it would be, for which I apologize. But on this map, you can see uh, Jonah's journey here. Uh, he was supposed to go to Nineveh, which is uh, to, for, on your right-hand side uh, in the Assyrian Empire, uh, from his home in uh, Geth, uh, Hapha. But he went the opposite direction. He goes to Joppa, which is uh, west, and he gets on a boat, and he goes and he starts to go to Tarshish, which uh, we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Tim Keller says uh, this about the prophet Jonah. He did the exact opposite of what God told him to do. Called to go east, he went west. Directed to travel overland, he went to sea. Sent to the big city, he bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. And he goes to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction to Nineveh. Now, the exact location of Tarshish is um, much debated, but most people, um, most, at least most people that I've read, um, not that I've perhaps read you know, all that much necessarily, but most people, I would say, agree that it's somewhere... Uh, in southern Spain. It's basically as far away as Jonah can possibly get. It's all, it is pretty much as far as the known world was at the time, the end of the earth. That's what Jonah's doing. He's getting on a boat, and he's getting a boat to the end of the world, as far away as he could possibly go. And he's doing that, it says, to flee from the presence of the Lord at the end of verse 3, to, to flee from the Lord. Now, it says in the NIV to flee from the Lord. Sometimes that can, is translated to flee from the presence of the Lord. But how can you do that? How can you flee from the presence of God? Because you can't, can you? I mean, God, God's omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere all at the same time. You can't escape him. And Jonah would have known this. In, in chapter 2, we'll see that he knows the Psalms very well. So he would know uh, this psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jonah knows this. He knows that he can't flee God's omnipresence. So he's not really, I, I, I believe, running from the presence of God, thinking that, well, God's not going to be here. He's not stupid. No, the, the presence of the Lord here is really the place of God's rule and blessing over his people. 
It's the place of God's rule and blessing over his people. The place where we serve him. It's the place of service. So Jonah is running away from the place where he's going to hear God's word and serve God according to his word. So by way of illustration, if I wanted to remove myself from God's presence today, I am not going to forget that God is omnipresent. My, I, I, I can't do that because I know God's omnipresent. But if I'm going to flee God's presence today, I'm going to avoid church because I'm going to hear God's word in church. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to open my Bible because God might speak to me. I'm not going to spend time with God's people because, well, they might challenge me. And so all the means by which God rules us by his spoken word, all the ways which God gives his blessing to us, I'm going to avoid. And in doing that, I am not able to serve him. I'm putting myself out of action. That's what Jonah's doing. Jonah is fleeing the place where he believes he's going to hear the word of God. He thinks that if I get a boat and I go to Tarshish, God isn't going to speak to me anymore. I'm not in God's service. He's not just going west because Nineveh is east. He's going west because it's away from Israel, where God's word has been given to him. And in doing so, he's taken himself out of God's service. And that can happen to any of us, can't it? We can... We know, we know that we can't avoid God. He's everywhere. But we can make a jolly good fist of never opening our Bibles, avoiding God's people, avoiding church, to escape the presence of God. Because usually, I don't want to hear his voice because it's going to put his finger on something that I don't want to hear because I want to live my own way. That's what Jonah's doing. He doesn't want to obey, and so he tries to, to close God's word on his life. And a determined path of sin always leads us away from God. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, Adam, after he sinned, what did he do? He, he hid from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And later he was banished from God's presence out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. The next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 4, we read that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord after murdering his brother Abel. A determined path of sin and rebellion leads us away from God. And Jonah was on a determined path. Notice his determination in this verse. He headed for Tarshish, so he didn't just, uh, you know, he, he could have headed for an another place, but he wants to go to the ends of the earth. When he gets to Joppa, he would have to search a ship that's going there. Joppa was a big port. It would have had lots of ships going all sorts of places. He'd have had to seek out a ship that was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He committed his own money towards his disobedience. And we'll read that he never got that money back. He got aboard when he could have realized his foolishness, and he carried on sailing. At any one of these moments, he could have turned back, but he gets deeper and deeper into sin so that he can get away from the presence of God. He doesn't want to hear the word of God. 
and he puts himself out of the service of God. And he feels that by absenting himself from the place where God speaks, he will not have to go through the Lord's plan. He believes that if I close my Bible, if I avoid hearing from him at church, if I avoid God's people, well then I won't have to do his will. That's what Jonah is thinking here. And we'll see next time the folly of that because the Lord's will is going to be done whether you want to run away or not. But what is it about this word of God that makes him so determined to flee the Lord's presence? What is it about God's word to us as well that makes us want to at times close our Bibles and avoid church altogether? Isn't it when we hear a word from God that goes against what we are wanting to do in rebellion against him. I mean, God calls us to live as Christians in our marriages, in our workplaces, as parents, in the way we conduct our relationships, in ways which are countercultural and challenging. And when everyone else is, is going in one direction, the temptation is to follow that, and it can seem the easy thing to do, and we think, well, I don't, I don't have to obey God. I don't want to obey God. And so we avoid his presence by not reading God's word because it's easier to disobey when I'm not hearing from God, so we think. And so we carry on down that determined path of sin. How, do you do, this, do that? Do, you, do, 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 we, do we do that? Do we avoid God's word so that we think we can get away with sin? I think we can all put our fingers on times when we do that, don't we? And you can understand, in a sense, where Jonah's coming from here. That the consequences of obeying God's word were potentially deadly. I mean, just a, a few problems that he might have thought that the people of Nineveh, they might kill him. Nineveh was an enemy of Israel, who, if revived, could be a problem again. Jonah was being called away from a place where he had received a great success and no one in Israel would have wanted him to go to Nineveh and do this his popularity would definitely take a hit I mean by all means preach against Nineveh from the safety of Israel's borders but don't go there and do it how unpopular would he be and for us obedience to the word of God can make us unpopular with family and friends and work colleagues Sometimes obedience to Jesus is going to be inconvenient and it's going to be difficult for us. Sometimes obedience to God's word does have serious consequences for us. But we are arrogant and we are foolish if we think that we know better than God. We are arrogant because God is God and we are not. And we are foolish because it is only in the, in the presence of the Lord, not away from it, where we find the true freedom to live as God has made us to be. As we'll see, what going away from God just leads to misery and destruction. That's what happens with Jonah. Rather than obey these, the word of God, people often want to run from the places where they may hear God's word spoken. Well, what is it about the word of the Lord that made Jonah run. Why did he run? What was the, the, the word 
for him. Now, all of us uh, you know, read commands from Scripture from time to time and probably think, I don't, I don't, oh, that, do I have to do that? And yes, we do. But what was it for Jonah? Well, actually, we don't find out the answer to that really in full until the end of the book. So we'll wait in part till the end of the book. But we can see some clues just by looking at the command that was disobeyed. This prophet, who was a proclaimer of mercy in Israel, did not want that same mercy extended to Nineveh. He had been shown great mercy in wicked Israel, and he didn't want that to be extended to wicked Nineveh. He is arrogantly sitting in judgment over God's word and over God's justice. He does not agree with God offering mercy to Nineveh, He did not want to suffer the potential problems that would arise from it, and so he runs. There is nothing here to show that in any way he thinks, God's been merciful to me, so maybe I should show mercy to others. And here's where it's brought home to us. Can you bear the thought of God's mercy being extended to your enemies? Can you bear the thought of Uh, 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 of people coming to church that you think would cause trouble or can make us uncomfortable in our seats that they might disrupt things and do things that we don't like can you bear the thought of God's mercy being extended to people that we've fallen out with in the past can you bear the thought of God's mercy being extended to people who perhaps speak differently to us Can you bear the thought of God's mercy being extended to criminals who want to come to know the Lord? Whenever we sit in judgment over who God shows mercy to, we completely forget the mercy that God has extended to us, and we are totally unable to show God's mercy to others. What great ingratitude to a God who came to us when we were sinners and died for us. Jonah had been shown extraordinary mercy in Israel. But he was not prepared to go and show that same mercy to another wicked nation. Who, by the way, had not received Hosea and Amos. And who didn't know better than Israel did. Israel had heard God's word proclaimed to them and they still were wicked. And he wouldn't go to Nineveh. At the beginning, I showed you a whole bunch of pictures of wicked people, but we all have our own galleries, don't we, I suppose? Who's on your gallery that that you think, oh, I wouldn't want God's mercy to go to them? And the irony of these verses is it's probably them that God's calling you to go and show mercy to. The recipients of God's mercy are not down to us to decide. Salvation comes from the Lord. But I want to end just by thinking of Jesus for one moment. Because Jesus, as we'll read a few times in Matthew's Gospel, is a greater Jonah. He is the prophet of God who shows the extraordinary extent of God's mercy as he pays the penalty for our sin, taking the wrath of God so that we can have eternal life. He shows the extraordinary mercy of God. 
But Jesus also shows us the opposite to Jonah's extraordinary arrogance. Because Jesus humbly leaves the glory of heaven where he as God is worshipped by everyone there, far more than successful Jonah. And he left that glory and he came to earth, which is in comparison far more of a gap than Israel or Gethhafer to Nineveh. And he showed mercy by dying for his enemies, his sinners like us. He obeyed his father's word, the father's plan for his own death and separation from his father. He prayed, your will be done. And he went all the way to the cross so that his enemies can have eternal life. <clears throat> incredible mercy, incredible humility. And in response to that, we ought to have that same humility of Jesus in not standing over God's word in judgment and saying, I know better than you, God, but rather in every area of God's word, coming under it and saying to him, your will be done. And we say, your will be done because you, O oh Lord, are a God of extraordinary mercy. And you've shown extraordinary mercy to me. And so I come underneath your word and I say, your will be done. Whatever you say, Lord, I will do because you have been extraordinarily merciful to me.